We're going to be in Genesis 3 today in our series, uh, Alpha and Omega, uh, God from beginning to end. Uh, we have been um, looking at him in creation, uh, and, and we will finish up the, the primary focus of that this week. But over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at just how absolutely practical. These, 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 three, these three chapters at the beginning of the Bible aren't just... They're not just there to, to start the story. They are absolutely meaningful, practical to life today. And so the, over the next three weeks, we're actually going to deal with that uh, and look at that as part of this series. So Genesis 3 is where we're going to be today. As, as you're kind of getting settled there, let me encourage you, go ahead, turn in the Bible, get there so that you can see the verses, so that you can see the words. Uh, but I want to share a quote from A.W. Pink uh, that, I, that I think is helpful. Just as we think about this, this chapter, what it teaches, and, and what it has to say to us. And so he, he writes... The third chapter in Genesis is one of the most important in all the Word of God. What has often been said of Genesis as a whole is peculiarly true of this chapter. It is the seed plot of the Bible. And you'll see, you, you, we've already talked about that seed last week. It is the seed plot of the Bible. Here are the foundations upon which rest many of the cardinal doctrines of our faith. Here we find divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of our race. Here we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Here we behold the utter powerlessness of man to walk in the path of righteousness when divine grace is withheld from him. Here we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. Here we discern the attitude of God toward the guilty sinner. Here we mark the universal tendency of human nature to cover its own moral shame by a device of, its own, of man's own handiwork. Here we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. Here begins that marvelous stream of prophecy which runs all through the Holy Scriptures. Here we learn that man cannot approach God except through our mediator. And I think Pink is right. I think he's absolutely dead on. This is one of, not the, but, but one of the most important books in all of the, or chapters in all of the Bible. And in it, we're introduced to the importance, to, to, the, to the existence of all that, that affects us in our life. And as I said, in the next three weeks, we're actually going to be looking at how absolutely practical and how relevant it all is. And the, the point we saw, we saw this last week, and the point we saw last week laid out that we're going to pick up from this week is the cosmos God created is corrupted and cursed because of mankind's sin. Only God can deliver us from the chaos. So, so, so all the evil, all the hurt, all the disappointment, all the sorrow and suffering and shame finds its roots in Genesis 3. And, and, and Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Satan, the serpent. So, so as I said last week, probably the best interpretation of this, the most accurate interpretation of this, is this is a real serpent, part of God's very good creation, that is possessed or being influenced by Satan, right? So it's, it's a real snake, it's a real serpent, but it's being possessed and empowered to do what it's doing by Satan. And, and so, 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 so even here, he, he has a part to play, right? He has, he has a temptation to, to be made, a, a lie to be told. But it's Adam and Eve's rebellion that actually brings, uh, bring, brings the, the, the creation back to chaos. And so it's their acts, it's their sin. And even though they were able to say it's because Satan, Satan made me do it, the reality is that wasn't enough. They were responsible. They were the ones that ultimately sinned. And, and, and as a result, God comes and pronounces judgment. 
and, and pronounces curses. And, 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 and so what we see happening is that even though the creation, even though the created beings, man and woman and, and Satan, rebel, that doesn't change anything about God. God is still God. And his godness, his godliness, his greatness, his glory, his, his goodness, his divine attributes are demonstrated. As he pronounces judgment, that was a good thing. We don't like it because it brought with it some difficulty. But he would have been a bad god if he hadn't brought judgment against sin, right? He would have, it would have undermined everything being good if he just let sin be. It demonstrates his greatness in that he's the one that exercises authority. And all he said and the curses he brought and the judgments he made, they have come true. It was so. It's just the reality. He has continued to be God. Even though the, the, the man and woman rejected him, even though Satan sought to undermine him, God was still God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Always has been, always will be, and is right now. He is God. The best thing we could do is recognize that, live in step with it, and live in line with it. But obviously, that's not happening in the world today. But, but as a result, here comes chaos, right? So, 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 so God comes and, 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 and responds to sin, and here comes the chaos that, that, that he thrusts the world back into as a result of our sin. But it's not without hope. In fact, as I mentioned last week, even though the, the primary perspective, the primary view of, of seeing God has been his greatness, his glory, and his goodness as we've looked at creation, even his grace is evident in this chapter. Even in the pronouncement of judgment, there's reason to trust him and hope because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. And, 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 and that becomes even more clear today as we recognize and look at these verses that demonstrate the one who created us is also the one who's determined he'll save us. Our creator is our savior. And that's what we're going to study today. That's what we're going to see as we work through Genesis 3, 14, verses, verses 14 through 24 again today. So let's read it. We'll pray and we'll dig in. So beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the word says, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, he, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till, till you return to the ground. For, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword 
that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, well, we've already admitted and confessed in, in our time of prayer earlier, we're needy, we're dependent, we need you, and we need your work in our lives. Uh, it's obvious what we do and where we go and the directions we head apart from your grace. And so would you work today? Help us to trust you more. Help us to place our hope in what you are doing more than anything we can do. Just transform us by the working and power of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the contrast is stark. It's, it's, it's powerful. It's, 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 it's so massive. It's big. The first two chapters are abundance, intimacy, uh, harmony, right? So abundance. You can have every tree in the garden except for one. So I don't know how many every tree in the garden is, but it's, it's more than two because they were given one, and then every other one in addition to the one, the tree of life, they were given. It, it, it seems that God is saying, you've got all of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prohibit one tree. I'm going to prohibit one tree. Everything else is yours. Abundance, just the, 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 the reality of living in, in, in the midst of God's rest, that he's established, that he's created everything and, and, and made it good, very good. And he says, it's all yours. Exercise dominion, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. It's all yours except for this one tree. Intimacy. We saw last week that, that God would come into the garden. They heard the sound of God in the garden. I don't know what that sounds like exactly. But, 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 but I assume wind, maybe, something like that. They hear God and they hide. And it was a directly opposite reaction to what would have happened had they not sinned. They heard God in the sound of the garden. Had they not just sinned and eaten the fruit that they weren't supposed to, they would have run to meet him. They would have sought to be with him. They would have lived in, in his tabernacle, in his temple, in his dwelling place, this garden. They would have lived there. They would have known the intimacy of fellowship with their creator. And harmony, everything working together as it was intended to do, every part playing its part. It's as if, and, and I love the word harmony because it speaks of, there's this, this, this song or this melodious idea behind the idea of harmony. It's not just peace, but it's everything together singing the same song, everything together praising the name of God, everything together proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming his glory, proclaiming his greatness. Everything together by its very existence was, was, was demonstrating that God is God, is harmonious, until this serpent creeps in and starts to spout lies, and Eve listens and begins to, to determine that the serpent is more trustworthy than the God who created her, and she eats the fruit. And in, this, in this reality, what we see happen, this stark contrast is not just to demonstrate how how, how, um, how, how big God's grace is. Absolutely. When we, when we talk about sin in, in our church, it's not to bring condemnation, although if you're apart from Christ, there is only condemnation for sin. But we talk about sin to, to demonstrate the bigness of God's grace. But in this contrast, we not only see the bigness of God's grace, we see the bigness of God's grace because of how severe the fall was this contrast shows us just how stark, how deep, how far we fell. We don't just understand the, the, the reality of sin. We understand the reality of what we lost, what we don't have anymore. We live in a world that, that's defined by toil, that's defined by labor, that's defined by hardness. The woman is going to have hard labor in birth. The man's going to have hard labor in eating. 
We, we, we have a, a, a world that's no longer defined by abundance, but by the scraping and the gathering and the hard work of having. We, we live in a world no longer marked by intimacy, but by division and, 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 and infighting enmity. Right? We, we live in a world that's, that's marked by discord, not harmony. And now we're all singing a different song. We're all singing our own praises. Living after what I want and what I need and what's most important to me. I hope you get yours, but I got to get mine. We've lost it. We fell from that. It's gone. And every one of us are, if you look around and you pay attention, everyone in this world knows that there's something wrong. They know there's something missing, and they're all trying to get back to it. We want the easy life, so what do we do? We create or invent to make our life easier. In fact, I, don't, I just recently heard somebody make this comment in a Bible study or a community group discussion or something like that. I don't remember who it was. We're talking about these inventions we make to make our lives easier, and then we just fill our life with more stuff and make our life hard again. Right? So, so, so this is supposed to make your life easier because I can be connected. Oh, gosh, I'm connected all the time. Well, I'm not because I put my phone down because I don't like carrying it around. But I know that frustrates some of you, but I don't care. <laughs> I don't like living with it. But, but th- think about what it does for us. I mean, I can talk to, I can talk to Pastor Dabo on the other side of the world because of stuff like this. Every blessing, every, every good thing comes with this weight. I remember when we moved into this building, what a blessing it was to be able to begin to use a building. This is our place. This, we, can, we can stake a claim in Springfield for the, for the glory of the Lord, right? And, and, and we bought it in a drought. And then it started to rain. And the roof started to leak. And we had to start taking care of an old building that's falling apart. Because it's just, that's the reality of the world we live in. It's hard. But no matter how, how, everybody wants to make it easier, but no matter how easy we think we're making it, we're just making it harder. We're just getting harder. The, 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 if we just, just invent the right thing, we'll have a good life. But in the whole history of inventions, that hasn't actually really happened. One thing got easier, but a lot of other things got harder. If we get the, if, if we can, here's what's interesting to me. So, so from Genesis 4 all the way through the, through the whole course of the Bible, we see people trying to figure out how to relate back to God again, find their way back to God. So Cain and Abel both bringing their, their, their stuff back to God, right? Everybody's doing this. Everybody's trying to find a way back into Eden. So we invent things. No, it doesn't work. Oh, I, I tell you what, we, we've just got to figure out how to get along together. We just got to quit trying to be like Cain and Abel and fight it. We just got to figure out a way to get along. So, so, so let's get the right government in place, the right laws, the right rules, the right thing. Been doing it. Are you, I, can, I can show you. It starts all the way back into Genesis chapter 4. You can begin to see Genesis 5, the lineage and the genealogies of mankind and the ways in which they begin to form and, and live. And In fact, they, they decided, oh, man, we finally figured it out in Genesis 11. And they're going to make a name for themselves and build a tower and stay in this place. And what does God do? He comes down and looks at him and laughs a little bit. Yeah, look at that little tower they just made. And he divides them up and gives them different languages. Because there is no way back to Eden. We continue to make the same mistake over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Oh, well, if, you know what? If, if we could just get rid of the morality, demands of morality, if we could just figure out how to live in a world and be naked without shame. You think about this. 
Man, we've been, we've been pushing the boundaries of decent dress and, and exposure of our bodies. When, when Noah comes out of the ark, he gets drunk and he's naked in his, in his tent. And, and two of his sons don't even want to look on his nakedness. Because there's a recognition that there's, there's a shame associated with it now as a result of the fall. As soon as Adam and Eve's eyes are open. And so now there's this whole thing that rape culture is connected to the, to the demands for, for modesty in dress. Rape is sin. It's abhorrent. But modesty is a good thing. If we, just, if, we just, if we just figure out how to be accepted and find intimacy, then, then we'll have the life we want, right? So, so, so we just got to quit telling people who they can love and who can be loved by them and who they can be loved by. So, so male, female, you know what? I don't really like people, so I'm just going to be all about solo. I'm just going to be all about me. So, so my sexual morality, no, this is not me making a confession. Don't, I'm just saying Right, so, my, so sexual immorality, everything from solo to heterosexual, adultery, I'm just going to have as many women as I possibly can have, many men as I possibly can have, to homosexuality. Now, now it's confused even further by this gender conversation that now we don't even know who's who anymore, and, 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 and well, I don't even know how to talk about it because it's just absolutely crazy. But if we could just figure out how to love and be loved, then we'd be back to Eden. It's not working. It is not working. Only God can deliver us from this chaos. Only God can bring light into this darkness. Only God can do this work. We see it everywhere. That the evil that, that now forms this chaos, the evil that now has invaded this chaos, we see it everywhere. Sidney Gridanus, writing in his book, Chaos to Cosmos, and the, that depicts and, and demonstrates all of the moves from cos- chaos to cosmos, back to chaos, back to cosmos, back to chaos. This, this flow all the way through the Bible to the point where God is finally going to culminate all the things that he's been doing in the end. He writes this, today we see this evil chaos east of Eden in the human race, in the en- enmity between people, races, religion, and nations and states, wars, slavery, religious persecution, racism. It's everywhere, right? Like, we, we, you don't even have to look far. It's everywhere. And, 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 and over and over, people are offering solutions apart from the gospel as if it will solve the problem. We see this chaos in the swollen bellies of malnourished children and people dying from cancer. And just imagine a world that was, supposed to be, that, that was supposed to provide abundantly for the people who lived on it. Now it's filled with people who are hungry. We see this chaos in the swollen bellies of malnourished children and people dying from cancer, Ebola, and other diseases and disasters. In in the thousands of refugees fleeing from their home countries, hundreds of them drowning as they cross dangerous seas in flimsy boats because they are running from oppressive governments and oppressive rulers, oppressive regimes. We, we, we see the chaos and the violence perpetrated by drug cartels and the senseless murders in our inner cities and the rape of women and children 40, or, uh, and in the spread of terror organizations whose goal is to destroy people, nations, and cultural treasures. Everywhere we look, all of our solutions end in the same place because it's the same sinful, rebellious people perpetrating them. Only God can deliver us from this chaos. 
The cosmos God created is corrupted and cursed because of mankind's sin. Only God can deliver us from the chaos. If we could learn anything, if we could learn anything from the 6,000 years or so of human history, I'm a young earth creationist, so 6,000-ish years of human history that have passed, you'd think we'd learn at least one thing. We can't save ourselves from the chaos. Only God can. Only God can deliver us from the chaos, and we can trust our great, glorious, and good creator as our gracious Savior. And even here, even right now, in the midst of this passage, in the midst of judgments and curses, God is demonstrating that he has a plan to do so. From the very beginning, he has been intending and working this plan. He gives us reason to look to him, to trust him, to live by faith because of him, and to know hope in the midst of chaos. His grace is the reason. Now, let me just show you. There's several evidences of grace. We've already read about them. We're going to walk through them pretty quickly. Evidences of grace worthy of faith and hope in Genesis chapter 3. But I'm going to walk backwards because the, the last one, the first one, that I'm going to deal with last, I want to, I want to deal with most directly. So first, in verse 22, God guarded the way to the tree of life. Now, it's interesting what happens. If you go back to that verse and you look at what he's doing, at the very end, in chapter 3, verse 24, he says, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He's not just guarding the garden against Adam and Eve. He's guarding the tree of life from Adam and Eve. But why is he doing that? So you look back at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now just imagine this. What if all the Hitlers and the Stalins and the, I don't know, you pick your evil person, what if they lived forever and, and, and could perpetuate their evilness on people forever? That'd be a pretty bad place to live. I mean, it's bad. But imagine a world where those people never die. Where Hitler's regime, where Hitler's rule is, is limited by the length of his life. Uh, imagine if the, if, if the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Charles Mansons of the world ate from the tree of life and lived forever. Imagine living in that world. Imagine living in the world where pedophiles, rapists, and those who purposely prey on others were able to eat from the tree of life. Imagine that world. It's bad. We got it bad. We, it, it, it's not, this, this isn't what we were. We lost harmony, intimacy, and abundance in the fall. But it ain't as bad as it could be. And maybe, maybe, maybe we don't even have to be quite so extreme. What if sinners like you and like me found a way to eat from the tree of life and live forever like this. Imagine that life. Imagine that world. Based on what I know about the people sitting in this room, I don't think, I think I could say unanimously, none of us would want that life. That's why we're all trying to figure out a way out of it. Inventing things. Looking for a different set of rules to live by. Demanding that that, that we, we form the right sets of governments and countries and relationships and, and over and over. 
God guarded the way to the tree of life. Yes, yes. As part of the exile, you, you can't have access to me. You, you can't live in my presence because of who you are, what you've done. You cannot stay here. But it's an act of mercy as much as an act of, of discipline, of punishment. God is keeping them. And, and, he, and he says it so. They cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. So he guards the, the, the path of the tree. He guards the garden. The one who now is, the one who is supposed to be guarding it, the one who is supposed to be exercising authority and dominion and, 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 and tending to it is now the one it's being guarded from. But part of that, at least in part, is to keep the man and the woman from living forever in this sinful state. God guarded the way to the tree of life. Next, we see in verse 21 that God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins in place of leaves. This is a direct response. So immediately, so they eat the fruit, right? They eat the fruit, and immediately the very first indication that something changes is their interaction between one another. They eat the fruit, and they see that they're naked. And what do they do? They cover up. They hide. So there's an immediate reaction, and they cover up. And what do they cover up with? Leaves. Now, I make this illustration. Every time I'm in Africa, we're doing creation across. This is one of the things that we walk through. And I always say, because we're always sitting under trees, could you imagine making clothes out of these things? Now, they use fig leaves, and fig leaves are kind of big, but I think they're still leaves. How, how good a clothes the leaves make? Not very good. You'd be so busy making clothes, that's all you'd be doing, making clothes. When are you going to have time to do the hard work of making, making plants grow so that you can make bread? Right? When are you going to do the, the, the work of being fruitful and multiplying? You know, all we can do is make leaves because I'm tired of not being covered up. I'm shame, I feel shame everywhere I go, everything I do. It's never going to be enough. It's insufficient. And a lot of people, they're going to say, hey, we, we don't want to push this too far. And they just want to look. They just want to look at what the text says and, and, and see it. And I, I'm like, I understand that. It's a, we, we, we want to understand how the original people would have been reading it. They wouldn't have been able to see Jesus in this. They wouldn't have understood the substitutionary atonement. But we have to ignore the rest of the Bible to not see the substitutionary atonement taking place here. The, the, substitutionary, the substitution covering the sin and shame of people. The dead animal skins used to cover their shame. Now, it is, so I told you, when we were working through uh, the first six days of creation and God says, let us make man in our image, and when, 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 there's, the, when there's the sun hovering or the spirit hovering over the water and, and, and there's plural words being used with plural nouns, Elohim is a plural noun being used with a singular verb. I told you, I don't, I don't want to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from that place. I told you that. And, and I don't because there's so many better places that the Bible clearly demonstrates the doctrine of the Trinity. But as I read those texts, and I would encourage you to do the same thing, is I don't want to ignore the rest of the Bible and not see the Trinity in Elohim or in God saying, let us make man in our image, or in him saying to, to, to this divine counsel that takes place, God, the, the man has become like one of us. Like, I don't want him, I, I don't want to limit that understanding because the rest of the Bible shows. I'm not going to defend the Trinity from there, but as I read that, I'm going to understand the Trinity. Now, I might not defend the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ from this passage, but I am going to say, because I can see the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible speaks of the substitution. I mean, you don't even have to go far. So Abraham, or not, not Abraham, Cain and Abel, what are they doing? They're offering sacrifices back to God immediately, the very next generation of people offering sacrifices, one animals, one, 
one fruits and vegetables. The first fruits of, of Abel's stuff he brings, right? He's offering a sacrifice. They immediately begin to understand sacrifice. Israel, the whole law was established as a substitutionary sacrifice. These animals are dying so that God will walk in covenant with you. Your sins can be forgiven so that God can walk in relationship with you. And all of that, the book of Hebrews tells us all of that was pointing to Jesus. It's all types and shadows. It's a foreshadowing of, a preparing of a, of, of a people to understand that they cannot do it on their own. They need one to do it for them. They can't do for themselves what only God can do. So God kills an animal. So far as we know, and I think this is, is accurate. In fact, one of the problems of the old earth position is that it, it doesn't leave room for, or, or, or their death has to take place. But this appears to be the very first death ever recorded, that ever existed. This animal dies so that these people, when exiled, can live and have their shame covered. But even if you're not convinced by that, there's still God doing something for them they couldn't do for themselves. Instead of wearing leaves, they're wearing animal skins. As they're being exiled to live outside of the garden, which we don't really have any understanding what that existence was like, other than it was hard. We don't know how mature the plants were at this point. We don't know how much produce there was going to be for them to eat. All we know is they're outside the garden. They're in exile. But God doesn't send them out in the cold without covering them up. He does for them what they can't do for themselves. So God guards the way of the tree of life. God covered Adam and Eve with animal skins. God ensures that Adam and Eve will still be able to eat. Verse 19, and, 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 and you'll see in just a minute, they're hearing every bit of this and understanding it. Adam and Eve, they're, they're going to have to work a lot harder, right? It, 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 he says to Adam in verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you eating is going to be hard work. So, so, so just expect it. You know, we, we hear people all the time asking the question, why is so much evil? If God is real, why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much hardship? The question we should be asking is, why does anything good happen? If, if Genesis 1 and 2 are true and Genesis 3 is true, why does anything good at all happen? Except that God still made a way so that we could still eat. He didn't abandon us completely. He didn't send us out into a world that's as bad as it could be. But into a world of hardship and difficulty in which we would still be able to eat. That's an act of mercy. Not extreme condemnation. Not, not extreme cursing. Not, 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 not a completely wiping away. Or, or sending away and not to care. God is still being merciful, even in the midst of this, still demonstrating his gracious nature. And, 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 and then just before that, in verse 16, God allows Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So, so, so just imagine this. So, so they have an understanding. If, if you're, you're, to, you're, to, you're to exercise dominion, be fruitful and multiply. Here's all the food for you to eat. So all of these things, right? All this stuff that they've been told. And as judgment and curses come, the judgment and curses affect every aspect of that. So now, exercising dominion, the world's going to rebel. Thorns and thistles. Ha, ha, uh, eating, the world's going to rebel. You're by the sweat of your brow. Hard labor to eat, right? Having children, hard labor, right? It's the exact same word. Eve gets the exact same word of hard labor. Toilsome having children. Some people would suggest it's not just in the bearing of children, but also in the raising of children. If you've ever raised a child, you know the toilsome labor of raising a child. 
It's hard. It's hard work. It's real. So, so I don't know if that's exactly explicit here, but there's a lot of people that see it there. But there's that toilsome labor. But, but here's what Adam hears. Adam hears immediately, oh, wait a minute. We're not immediately going to die. And you know how I know he, he heard that in the curses? was because in verse 20, the very first thing that happens after God pronounces his judgment and his curses, what, is, what does Adam do? Verse 20, he names his wife Eve. Why? Because she's to be the mother of all the living. Isn't that shocking? Now, they spiritually died. They're about to be sent out of God's presence and no longer have There's a spiritual death that takes place, absolutely. And immediately, they begin to physically die. They will return to dust. God tells them that. But in the middle of it, what do they get to do? They still get to eat. They still get to have kids. They still get to be fruitful and multiply. There's still going to be an exercising of dominion. There's still going to be a way in which all the things that God commanded them to do, they're still going to have an ability to do. He has not absolutely decimated the human race in the judgment and curses brought against sin. God has mercifully dealt with them even in this moment. It, God, would, God would be just as good if he had walked into that garden and snuffed Adam and Eve. God would not have been a bad God if he'd have snuffed them out right there because they ate the fruit they shouldn't have eaten. They rejected his authority. They, they determined to go their own way. They did their own thing. He would still be good. Because he's righteous, he's holy, he's perfect. But in this act, in this work, in this way in which he's dealing with the man and woman, he's actually demonstrating great grace and great mercy. Even in this, it's not as bad as it could be. God has a plan. And, and in fact, it, it's, it's stated, as he's speaking to the serpent, in fact, it's stated that, that there's coming a day when God's going to defeat Satan. The, the one who's controlling the serpent, God promised the, defeat, promised the defeat of Satan by Adam and Eve's descendants. So here are Adam and Eve. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. And hey, by the way, there's one who's going to be born that's going to get struck on the hill by the serpent, but going to crush his head. Going to strike him on the head. There's, there's a balance between these two things. But the reality is, is the serpent's going to come and bring some harm. But this one that's coming... This one that's promised, this descendant of yours, this seed from Eve is going to strike him on the head, going to kill him, going to destroy him, going to defeat him. And that's imaged, so, so in verses 14 and 15, that's imaged and reflected in the way he curses the serpent. To the serpent, he says, you're going to crawl on your belly all the days of your life. Some people say that probably serpents would have walked, they would have had legs, and God now takes the legs from them. I don't think that that's necessarily true um, because he also says you're going to eat dust and we know that serpents don't eat dust. They, they are on the ground and it might get some in their mouths, but serpents don't eat dust. I, I think that this is a, 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 an analog or a metaphorical symbolic statement that the serpent is going to know defeat all of its life, right? And not just the serpent, but the one who's controlling it. You've used this serpent for a, for a means that's, beyond, that, that's against the glory of God. That's a, so, so this serpent gets cursed. And you say, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, yeah, it doesn't seem right. But it didn't seem right that an animal had to die because our sins needed to be covered. Our shame needed to be covered. That doesn't seem right. doesn't seem right that a serpent would be, be cursed in the place of Satan. Satan's the one that did it. Yeah, it doesn't 
seem right. But you know, the whole earth got cursed because of man. He said to Adam, because you listened to your wife, cursed is the ground because of you. You see, our sin, and, and the, it, it, brought, it brought curse and hardship. It brought cutting off from God to everything. To everything. This is how severe the fall is. And then I, I would just say, it, it doesn't seem right in our seeming, our understanding of equity. But, but remember, we're the ones looking at things from a fallen perspective. Paul has an answer for us sitting around saying it doesn't seem right. Romans chapter 9. Who are you, O pot, to speak back to the potter? This is God's world. <laughs> he does what God's going to do. Ruled by his great, glorious, good, and as we can see it now, gracious nature. Everywhere we look, we see the results in a physical and real way the physical results of sin and evil and rebellion against God. And we all know something's wrong and we all want out of it, but only God can deliver us. And only God has always said, I'm making a way. Our creator has determined to be our savior. And even here, even now in this, in this curse against serpent and Satan, he says, you are going to be defeated. And, and, and I'm going to demonstrate that defeat first to the serpent, but one day there's one coming. There's one coming, you're going to strike his heel. And we know that happened on the cross. Satan did his best. He had no understanding that God had always planned for Jesus to die in our place and for our sins. He had no understanding that God was going to be victorious even in that. And one day, one day, one day, he will come. He will return and he will put Satan down once and for he will crush the head of that serpent. It is a gracious plan worthy of faith and hope. It's a gracious plan in which we can all react like Adam who says all of a sudden and understands some understanding. We're going to continue to live. That means Eve's going to be mother of all the living. So he lives by faith. He begins to act in faith and he begins to anticipate and hope and long to see what's coming. So a lot of people think that, 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 uh, that, that they think as soon as they start having kids, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Now, with Cain and Abel, they pretty quickly realized neither of those are the ones, right? Because Cain kills his brother and uh, Abel's dead. He's not doing it. Is Seth, Seth, is he the one? Is he? And what's beautiful about this is from, from the moment that they fell into sin, mankind has been looking for hope to the God who said, I'm both creator and savior. He has a gracious plan that's worthy of faith and hope. And we see that. We see that anticipation, that expectation build, not just from Adam and Eve. But when he speaks to Abraham, what does he tell Abraham? I'm going to give you a son. And through him, all nations will be blessed. And Abraham begins to wait. Doesn't wait perfectly, does he? No, nope, he stumbles and falls and makes some mistakes. But he begins to wait and anticipate. And the Israelites... They're looking forward to the coming of their Messiah. They're anticipating and waiting. And here we are today, looking back in history, but still anticipating and waiting for the day that Jesus will return to crush the head of that serpent. God has a plan that's worthy of our faith and hope. God's plan will be accomplished at the right time. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians. Well, there's so many other things he teaches in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. 
In him we have redemption. This is Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. A plan that God has had since before the foundation of the world. Peter tells us that Jesus knew from before the foundation of the world that he was coming. But it's a plan set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. All that, was, all that was destroyed by our sin and rebellion against God, all that came as a result of God's judgment and curses and the spiritual war he started, God is going to reunite heaven and earth when the time is right and when the fullness of time comes. It's a plan for the fullness of time, a plan he started at the very beginning and will continue to work until he brings it to completion in the end. God will fulfill his promise to destroy Satan. And we know that ultimately Jesus is the one who does this and whose work accomplishes this. But Paul says something at the end of the book of Romans that demonstrates that he's going to do this through his people, his body. It's in very closing statements of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 19 through 20. For your obedience is known to all, speaking to the church in Rome, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So, so pick up good and evil. I want you to be wise to understand the difference, to know what's good and what's evil. I want you to be wise to that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Today we're waiting, much like Adam and Eve, much like Abraham, much like the Israelites were waiting to see Jesus come, to see Jesus return and, and finally and fully put, away, put Satan away and, and, and put evil away. God is going to fulfill his promise while we wait somehow, some way. He intends to do that work through his church. That's you and me. As much as it's the Christians in Rome, it's the Christians sitting right here in this room. To live in faith, to live in hope, to be a people who understand the difference between good and evil and look forward to the day Jesus will finally and fully put him down. Our creator has always planned to be our savior. Always we can trust him. He will deliver us. Let's pray.